This is Jamda On The Go, your review of the content featured in Jamda, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the positions of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now, here's our host for Jamda On The Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Hello, and welcome to Jamda On The Go for March 2023. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome, live and in the flesh, which is very different from our usual podcast, our newish co-editors-in-chief of JAMDA, Drs. Barbara Resnick and Paul Katz. Wow. There was applause. You probably couldn't hear that, listeners, but there was applause in the room, uh, a smattering of applause. Um, anyway, we hope that you're liking our new interactive style for JAMDA On The Go with the content experts who actually did the research and or writing. Our editors, uh, first, Barbara Resnick, Ph.D., CRNP. Barb's a professor in the Department of Organizational Systems and Adult Health at the University of Maryland School of Nursing. She teaches in the Adult Gerontological Nurse Practitioner Program and Doctoral Program and co-directs the Biology and Behavior Across the Lifespan Research Center of Excellence. She holds the Sonia Ziporkin Gershowitz <laughs> chair in gerontology. Sorry, I stumble over that every time. Uh, does research in all settings of care and has over 40 years of clinical practice, which is currently in assisted living and senior housing communities. So obviously, Barbara started her practice when she was about 10 years old. Yes. Okay. Sorry, I can never help that. Is that ages to do that? Some people take, take offense. I, I always take it as a compliment. Okay. Uh, and Dr. Paul Katz, uh, my friend and colleague, a professor, professor of geriatrics at Florida State University, and also serves as medical director for Westminster Communities of Florida and Presbyterian Senior Life, based in Pennsylvania. He's a past president of AMDA with a research focus on medical staff organization and its relationship to quality. Paul's a certified medical director with over 40 years clinical experience in nursing homes, also having started at the age of 10, and uh, also in assisted living and outpatient geriatric care. And finally, our special guest today, Dr. Rebecca Elan. She initially took Dr. Petit's medical director training program in the 1980s and subsequently joined his CME faculty teaching this program across the country. She was part of the group that turned Dr. Petit's program into the AMDA core curriculum, so really a pioneer. Uh, she was the first class of CMDs and served on the initial certification council. Dr. Elan was nominated for a second tour of duty in 2019, so uh, glad she's back and uh, currently serving as the ABPLM and core curriculum faculty. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, Rebecca also serves as voluntary part-time faculty in geriatric medicine at Johns Hopkins and CMO Emerita and senior medical consultant for future, hair, future care health and management. And uh, hopefully you'll be sticking around for, for uh, Sunday because Rebecca will be delivering the Anne-Marie Filkin MD lecture on Sunday morning. So, uh, and um, 
Rebecca wants me to make sure that I remind everyone to spring forward so you don't oversleep and miss her talk. And Rebecca, thank you also for uh, some of the other talks that you've given at our meeting. And uh, you're truly a legend, and it's a pleasure to welcome you here. So welcome, all three of you. So uh, today we're really going to be focusing in on, on one particular article and editorial. And uh, this is Dr. Katz and team's editorial entitled, Raising the Bar for Physicians Practicing in Nursing Homes, The Path to Sustainable Improvement. And that is a mouthful in more ways than one. So Paul, can you give us a synopsis of your points in that editorial? Uh, absolutely, and thank you, Carl, for this opportunity. Uh, probably everyone is familiar with the recent uh, report from the National Academy of Science um, and Medicine about uh, improving quality of care in nursing homes. and when I looked at that, uh, when our team looked at that, it, it was clear that it was a, it's a very important document, clearly, and it focuses uh, understandably and deservedly on the workforce that is most important in nursing homes, nurses, CNAs, uh, et cetera. But what I think has been missing, not only from that document, but other um, treatises on improving care over the last several decades is a focus on the medical provider. And I'm speaking about physicians, but I, it really is, we're talking about nurse practitioners, physician assistants, people who deliver primary care. Right. And the, the focus of this editorial was basically, how do we assure that the medical providers are delivering high quality, competent care and have the necessary skill set and experience? So we make an argument in editorial that in order to establish that, that level, that standard, we, we should seek some sort of special recognition or alternatively a specialty recognition for medical providers uh, uh, using, as some have suggested, the hospitalist model. Um, during the editorial, uh, we go into a discussion about which of these paths would be most, ex uh, most expedient. And even though the hospitalist model has been successful, the uh, focused recognition uh, through the ABIM um, has not been that successful for, um, for, the, uh, for the hospitals. In fact, only a very small percentage actually partake of that recognition. Are you talking about becoming a board-certified hospitalist? Yeah, it's, it's called focus recognition. Uh -huh. So that was, that was one alternative I thought, well, maybe the, uh, we could do uh, in long-term, post-acute long-term care. Probably not going to be possible. Uh, and of course, we have very we have much fewer post-acute and long-term care um, practitioners than in hospitals. Right. So we conclude that uh, I'm getting smaller all the time. Yeah, I'm getting smaller as well. <laughs> uh, we get. I think. Um, the, I think one alternative is to have uh, our own AMDAs-based ABPLM um, create a credentialing process, much like the, they do with certified medical directors, to start establishing this. Um, and I, I, I must say that I was so um, thrilled that Rebecca uh, wrote her incredibly insightful letter in response to our editorial, because it, brings, it does bring up the, the discussion of, well, maybe there are other alternatives. And that's really one of the focuses of, of this editorial, was to get the dialogue going. Um, I, I mentioned in another um, uh, meeting this morning that the National Academy uh, treatise report is, is, was really great. 
but only two pages out of 600 had a discussion of physicians. Right. So we need to do something. We're not, you know. That was better than zero, though, right? Better than zero. Okay. We're part of the team. So yeah. that's basically the, the essence of the editorial. Yeah, thank you for that. And I, I think um, any of us that work in this setting and that have, uh, you know, do chart reviews or that sort of thing, uh, it's, it's disconcerting sometimes to see, um, I'm just trying to think of a nice way to say it, but just let's say suboptimal uh, medicine being practiced. And there are these groups that hire brand new nurse practitioner graduates and set them loose on these extremely ill, multi-morbid patients with very little supervision. And um, that's, uh, that's clearly problematic and, and patients suffer from that. Um, and I, I love the idea of having a sort of a, something that sets a floor uh, for people who practice in our care setting. But the question is, like so many things, and especially given this younger generation isn't big on signing up for things and joining and, and things like that, would people actually do it? If the nursing homes required it to practice there, that would be one thing. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I've never seen nursing homes have that much interest in, I mean, sometimes it feels like the medical care being provided is almost an afterthought. Yeah, and we don't have any national data, but, uh, to, you know, uh, as a follow-up to what you just said, there are too many medical practices that focus on volume and right. productivity and not on quality. And until we hold them to that standard, we're going to have poor quality. Yep, yep. So, Rebecca, you wrote a great editorial, and if you could just share some of that with our listeners. Sure. Well, I totally agree with the editorial that uh, Dr. Resnick and Dr. Katz um, worked so hard on, and um, it's a very... Uh, informative document. Um, the only thing that I wanted to mention was that um, the editorial says that a first step to establishing quality standards is the development of a subspecialty. And that was my major point of uh, difference with the editorial. Um, our medical directors already know, as you just described, who's doing a good job and who's not doing a good job. Yes. And every medical director has it within their power to uh, construct a report card for their facility, um, perhaps with some support from AMDA, um, in order to give feedback to people. And the first thing that I found was that oftentimes people coming into our environment have no idea what is expected, right. and they don't have the education. So AMDA has done a wonderful job in creating the core competencies, not only for medical directors, but for attending physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs in the facility. And then um, uh, Dr. Morton, in her role at ABPLM, uh, also then conducted the job analysis that sort of flows out of those competencies and so forth. So um, I think it would be great for us to have a specialty I think at this point, many, many physicians, NPs, PAs, um, have credentialing fatigue. And my question is, if we say, okay, we have this process, um, how many people are going to say, oh, yeah, I want more uh, fees, and I want more <laughs> mandatory CME, and I want this, and I want that? I don't know. I think the hospitalist data, I think you quoted only 12% of hospitalists have uh, gone through the focus practice designation process with ABIM, and I agree with you, that's probably not going to fly. And, and the reason that board certification is uh, as, as well taken up as it is is because hospitals require it, and as you said, um, the nursing facilities are struggling to get any 
licensed practitioner through the door. And, um, you know, ABPLM a few years ago did a um, stakeholder survey because as a board, we certainly recognize that it would be great if we could have a um, formal knowledge assessment as part of the credentialing process. And what we found out was that around the country, a lot of people don't even know what a CMD is. And when you talk about further requirements, there, the, the industry around the country is afraid that if you make more requirements, they're going to have more and more trouble uh, getting people. people to come in. Yeah. So um, I think... I think that it's, uh, it is important that we, d we acknowledge you need special knowledge to do this work. Actually, one of the posters here um, is from a, a young doctor in, in Cleveland at the VA, and their geriatrician group had shrunk, so they could no longer take care of the post-acute and long-term care VA patients, and it was assigned to the hospitalists. And oh. the hospitalists apparently were not real happy about this. <laughs> but... Um, so the geriatricians basically gave the education to the hospitalists and um, the study looked at sort of outcomes of testing pre and post and all of that. But what this young doctor said was that the most important thing, they found a subgroup of hospitalists who really loved this environment. Right. You know? And what we found is that we, in our facilities, we often had hospitalists who were getting burned out and they wanted some continuity. They wanted to get to know patients and families. They didn't want to just constantly be doing shift work and dealing with all the throughput. Um, they wanted to get to know people and make a difference. So they came to us in the nursing facility, but they didn't have a clue. They thought, oh, it'll be easy. How hard can that be? Yeah, we'll just throw a little Seroquel at them at bedtime and yeah. you know, keep so, them on sliding scale insulin forever. So um, I, think, I think we're all ready to find as a body of knowledge, which is necessary for a subspecialty, we have the core competencies, we have a job analysis, um, and I think every medical director should be evaluating their uh, medical staff, but also teaching their medical staff, using evaluation as a form of teaching. And I, I think that leads uh, to another issue. W whatever direction we go, we're gonna have to, whatever that standard we set, we're going to have to prove that people who adhere to those standards that demonstrate that skill set do a better job, enhance quality, save money, improve the system. In order to that, we're going to need research to do that. And the, the, under, the underpinnings of that is we have to have quality measures that are medical provider specific that we can use uh, in large groups of uh, a large population to demonstrate to the people who make policy that these are the sorts of medical providers we need. That's the only way we're gonna have real change. Um, and that will maybe force more education, you know, another credential. But that, that's a long way off, but we have to move in that direction. Right, and maybe PALTC Foundation can fund some research, uh, you know, to help define some of those things. But it really is, uh, it's challenging and we already have enough trouble getting people in our care setting. But as you said, Rebecca, there are people who have never been exposed to it and then they get there and like us, they say, oh, this is a really cool, colorful place to work. It feels meaningful. Um, and, and so, but how do we get them in? And um, as the AMA rep, uh, you know, we took a resolution from AMDA up to the AMA to request that um, that the AMA push for making some 
uh, long-term care experience part of all primary care residencies and um, you know part of the uh, medical student experience and uh, they they said well how about if we just say they will recommend it and that's what they wound up with so and we begged them like please uh, you know you're going to recommend it nobody's going to do it if you if you try to make it mandatory then at least if even if it's eight hours 12 hours get them in there yeah i i would take it back one step further and say uh, we have to get graduate medical education funding to support education in post-acute and long-term care. Yes. And um, actually our geriatrician colleagues at CMS are very much aware that this is an issue. It's a very hot political issue. Um, Dr. Wasserman is also working very hard on this issue. But one thing that struck me about your editorial was you talked about the uh, Dutch system. And in the Dutch system, there are many, many differences. But basically the government funded the um, the medical practice. The, the specialty, right? The, the specialty. elderly care that they yeah. call it or whatever, yeah, yeah. yes. And um, I, I just heard that the Hartford Foundation is sort of renewing um, teaching nursing home well, grants? They're, they're redoing uh, just a pilot yeah. uh, in Pennsylvania. Yeah, but if, you know, with the um, National Academy report, the problem is we as a society don't have the will to fix this problem. This problem is fixable. The question is, do we have the will to fix it? Right. It's going to take um, redirection of graduate medical education funding. It's going to take academia taking an interest because academia is not too interested in this area with some notable exceptions. Um, it's going to take private industry. Um, it's going to take community. You know, it's going to take a partnership between families and uh, the facilities and the professionals. And so it's if we need we need mission, we need purpose. We need, um, you know, if we if we want to go to the moon, people get behind that. If we want to have a war on cancer, people get behind that. This is such a big issue now for a lot of families. I think we're at a moment where um, we just need we can get we behind it. The, yeah, yeah. Roots. We need the will. To act. Yes. Amen. Well, and I, and I thought COVID might be that thing, you know, because suddenly we got a lot more because of the sheer devastation in our care setting. We got a lot more attention. But now it seems like we're, we're back to square one. But I think we baby boomers want good care. Right. And so maybe maybe we can kind of push for that. Barb. So, you know, I've been very involved with medical education because I'm a strong proponent of it and did a lot of work through the American Geriatric Society. And one of the things I've always pushed and said is all physicians need to know how to provide good care for older adults, because no matter what you do, this is going to be what you're doing. And. In fact, this is what we did. I always share the model in advanced practice nursing. We transition. There's no such thing as what I am, uh, which is a geriatric nurse practitioner. Right, that went away. Every, it, it went away. So all adult nurse practitioners have to spend time in long-term care or they can't graduate and they can't practice. So it's actually a good thing. It's actually a good thing. Yeah. And part of some of the MPs you talk about and raise that don't know what to do in that setting are family nurse practitioners that unfortunately have not had that opportunity to be trained in that environment. Right, right. They can take care of pregnant women and babies, but... Uh, the full spectrum right. is hard to learn in a short time. Indeed. So I, I, I think it's, 
it could be so fixable. And it is so much, if we made it policy, if we made it required, then it could happen. And it doesn't have to be at a cost to credentialing and yeah. all of I, that. I don't think making it required is necessarily the answer. I think more of an answer is creating something that's so exciting yeah, that people well. want to come to it. Yeah, just how do we do that? We have that? to bring them there sometimes first. Well, and part of the tragedy of the fact that uh, post-acute and long-term care is really shunned and uh, excluded from a lot of uh, medical uh, education and curricular fights is that one of the major determinants of who, what specialty a young doctor, a medical student is going to go into is if they've had exceptional mentor. So our exceptional mentors are essentially being denied access. And I think that's one of the major reasons that we don't see more people wanting to come in. You know, you mentioned the hospitalists come in and they go, oh, wow, this is really a, a very exciting environment. What if we picked up those people when they were, you know, first year medical students? Right, right. Um, but it's also over the past few years, unfortunately, it's been harder to get students into long-term care. So when you talk about the partnerships that's also critical because it's hard to find locations and I also find it's really hard for us to drag our medical students out of the hospital mm -hmm. and spend a day. We try and take them to senior housing or any level of post-acute and long-term care. Yeah, one other thing I just wanted to mention was that we also took a resolution to the AMA that had to do with um, because, you know, these medical students graduate with three or $400,000 of debt. That's something that kind of pushes them away from doing less well-compensated specialties. Uh, so what we, what we ask the AMA to do is push for um, calling any type of practice that concentrates on the post-acute and long-term care setting to be considered a medically underserved area or uh, a health provider uh, shortage area for the purposes of loan repayment. And that's something that they refer to the board for consideration. So maybe, you know, if they can, of course, they don't have the authority to make that happen, but they can certainly help push for that. And uh, perhaps that would bring more people into our care yeah. setting. I, I, I totally agree with... Uh, doing this from a voluntary approach and not mandating, not that we could mandate much, um, but we, that we have to come to a, a solution to the, those bad, I'm going to say bad in parentheses, practitioners out there that are not doing the suboptimal, suboptimal, uh, and get them out of, uh, we've all had experience with them. Um, and, and really or build them, them up. If it's even possible, it's hard to get them out, they're, especially they're, if they're if they're sending patients. You know, the the facility. If you're the medical director, you're like this doctor shouldn't be practicing there. They're like, I know, but they're, they send us patients. And then I know Barb and I were at a meeting a few hours ago, where the the the, the very disturbing statistic that half of the geriatric fellowships had zero applications this year. Zero. That's really true. That's just so uh, which disturbing. Means that the, it's tragic. The mentors, the leaders um, for post-acute long-term care, at least some of them, we're, we're just not, they're not there anymore. So it's, it's, it's real, it's a crisis. 
I think the mechanism to phase out suboptimal performers already exists. And it exists through your credentialing process. It exists through your individual facility medical directors. Um, and again, you have to educate people, give them uh, the criteria of what's expected, and then you have to monitor how they're doing. You have to give them feedback. You hope that they can adjust. Um, many nursing homes have done workarounds because if they can't afford to let any of the medical staff go because there aren't a lot of uh, practitioners in the community waiting right. to take those jobs, nurse practitioners have stepped up to the plate and have really made a tremendous uh, contribution to improving medical care in nursing facilities. But we have to go um, further down the, the um, stream or further up the stream, I don't know which is the right metaphor, for um, making sure that we have a workforce. And, and to get that workforce, I don't think you can force people. You know, you have to work in the nursing home unless, um, actually, uh, in the 1980s, I had the chance to spend a month in Germany and look at their long-term care system. And there were all these young men working in the nursing home. And I thought, where did all these young men come from? And it was... Um, it, it was um, conscientious objectors to their draft. Wow. And their Let's bring back the draft. I mean, I'd love to have some nice young men be, in the buildings. Uh, working as orderlies and aides <laughs> and doing all this sort of stuff in the nursing wow. facilities. Um, you know, why can't we form the uh, U.S. Jerry Corps? And that working in the Jerry Corps would be a role of honor. And it would be uh, helping the, the country solve an important problem. Yeah. It would be taking care of our beloved elders. I mean, why can't we have something really positive that people want to partake in uh, to be part of this meaningful uh, uh, project. Yeah, and now you're thinking big and you're thinking outside the box and I, I love that and you know, I, this new generation, um, and I, I shouldn't be a curmudgeon, but um, in so many ways they, they want to do something meaningful, right? And you'd think this would resonate with them and yet you know, they also want to be congratulated every time they show up to work on time and, and given awards for actually just showing up. Uh, so it's a little bit difficult, but I do think um, and even if it the last thing we took to the AMA had to do with uh, a path to citizenship for people uh, from other countries who could come and devote their time to working in this care setting for some amount of time. I mean, we're trying to think of anything that will work to bring people into our care setting. Yeah, I just want to raise, because I just came from the session, and give a shout out to Michelle Bellantoni, who we just put together the... Um, you know, an entire series of, I think it's about six modules for new providers coming into long-term care. And one of the sections is all about the joy of long-term care. And so that's also a great resource. It's gonna be free to all AMDA members. And um, I think very, very cheap in it's about three hours, you can get CME credit. So it's a great way to also maybe try freely to build an, honestly, we had great participation. So Yeah, but you're at the AMDA meeting, right? Yeah, so well, kind no, of self-select. No, these were new providers, ah, though. So okay. new providers, a cool. lot of futures folks. So again, I think we have some sparkles A little buzz, there. a little a buzz. A little sparkle. Uh, the um, the company that I've worked for um, since 1997 in various capacities had a uh, recruiting office in Manila. And my question is always, what is it about this job that people who are born in this country don't want to work in this environment? 
And that is a very basic underlying question. And why don't we fix the jobs before subjecting all these international uh, professionals to um, this environment? And, and why don't we ask the question, why don't U.S.-born citizens want to do this work? Yeah, well, and especially if there's a path, a career path, and all those things that were, all, all, you know, employers are just pulling their hair out trying to think of anything that will resonate, you know, these more flexible work schedules and special benefits and things like that. And I just, I shudder to think, uh, you know, I, I, there's just no obvious solution. So all of these things are helping a little bit, but so many people have left the workforce. And uh, yeah, anyway, but let's not end on a, on a down note, I think what I'd like to do is just ask each of you to have some, give, share some uh, final comments before we wrap it up. And I'll start with you, Barb. Well, I, I would say to me, I look at it all as opportunity. And you're right. What can we do to bring people in? And we know some of the things we just have to we just have to do them. And there's staffing problems everywhere, but particularly in geriatrics. So. I think we, I, I believe we're gonna have turnaround. We've had three major nursing shortages that I've lived through. And we, we've come around. <laughs> I graduated when there was a glut. Um, I think there's so much that the individual medical director can do that, you know, we have to change our mental narrative of the nursing home. And you do that by providing excellence in every interaction, in every interaction with every patient, resident, with every family, with every staff member, with every hospital, with every surveyor. And if you've got medical directors who are consciously doing that, and they're all over the country, they're AMDA members, um, you fix things by one upon one upon one upon one, which becomes millions upon millions. And, um, but I think that we have to have sort of a conscious effort to change the narrative and we have to, we have to be part of changing that narrative. That's truly inspirational. Thank you. Paul, you gotta, you gotta follow that. I'm not sure I can be that inspirational, but I am optimistic. Um, and I really along the same lines as Rebecca, when I round, uh, in the nursing home or assisted living, you know, any other long-term care site with medical residents who have not been exposed to the patient population and to teamwork and to the, the uh, I guess, the joy of practice in that environment. I can see that it really resonates with a lot of people, as you were saying, Rebecca. And if we can find a way to, uh, to interface more with these learners, then, you know, maybe it is one-on-one -on -one and we'll build. Yeah. Bottom line, we believe in the joy of long-term care. We do, but we're the choir, right? And, and we're here at the beautiful AMDA uh, meeting in Tampa, you know, recharging our batteries and it's like a big family reunion. Um, but again, you know, we're preaching to ourselves and we really need to f bring other people in to, to see the magic really of, of our care setting. Uh, uh, so anyway, well, that's a good positive note to end on. And uh, I'd like to thank our participants today for this very special edition of JAMDA On The Go. Uh, the editorials that we spoke about will be available at www.jamda, that's J-A-M-D-A dot com. And uh, thanks again to all of our participants. Uh, you guys rock, and thanks for all the great work that you have done and continue to do. If you are a physician, 
and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast. Thank you.